Our speaker for the hour is Wayne Jones. I originally found a photo recently on Facebook of him speaking here early on in his time with us. I think we were talking about it. I think he spoke the first time in 2010. It looked like a photo from Future Preachers Training Camp. <laughs> Wayne has the blessing of looking very young. Uh, and so, but he's been with us, and I think honestly, I think Wayne holds the record for uh, the most outside times we've invited someone to speak here. He's spoken here almost every year since 2010, and there's a reason for that, and it's because he loves the Lord, he loves His Word, and he has a an ability to impart God's Word in a way that makes it understandable and personal and challenging. He has. Uh, served as the pulpit minister for the University uh, Church of Christ in San Marcos, Texas uh, since 2007. He's no longer doing that. He's with us now. I have a, I have a bio that's a little out of date, so I'm not going to go through all the details. But he has the degrees that you would expect a preacher to have. He graduated from the Memphis School of Preaching. Um, but his, his family is important to Wayne, and that's clear in how he deals uh, with his family. He has four daughters. Daughters, two son-in-laws, two grandsons, um, and uh, they are the center of his life outside of his life with Christ and with God, and uh, they are a blessing to us and a blessing to him, I know. He has served as an instructor at the Southwest School of Biblical Studies in Austin uh, for a number of years. He has now uh, on staff here at the Bear Valley Bible Institute, and we are blessed to have him here, and so are our students uh, to get to study from him. He's done work with World Video Bible School. He does a weekly podcast entitled Authentically Adam. Is it weekly? <laughs> that was my one little chip. Um, that deals with issues of fatherhood, marriage, parenting, and leadership. And it's excellent. You should listen and tune in. But mostly you should listen and tune in to what he has to tell us this morning from the Psalms. So uh, come preach the word, brother. We were joking about introductions and being nervous about what people would say. Um, regardless of what Michael would say, um, I'm thankful for his friendship and thankful to be a part of this staff. Um, I, I don't know that that necessarily uh, you want... There's nobody like right here, so maybe I should do this. Um, <laughs> no, please don't. Please don't. Great. Um, just kept my mouth shut. Um, I don't know that you necessarily come to lectureship for us, um, those of that are that are on staff. Uh, but the fact that you've come here this morning may may have a little more indication of of the subject matter, and we'll get to that in a moment than necessarily who is speaking. Um, but I pray that what we say today will be a blessing uh, to you. I think it can rightly be said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He doesn't run from our troubles. We can lay them at His feet and He will embrace them, uh, count them with us, uh, watch over them, uh, and help struggle, uh, struggle with them. He's not wearied by our what-fors and why-me's and how-long's. On the contrary, He takes pleasure and gets glory in being our rock, our refuge, our sustainer, our redeemer. It's 
what He is built for and how He built us to need Him in those ways. So in the many days and circumstances when we go somewhere else to find answers to our troubles, when we lay our burdens down at the feet of of something else, less powerful, less sustaining, less benevolent, less caring, I'm convinced He looks down in pity just longing for us to open our heart to Him and share the struggles that we had. Not, not, not only because He knows that He has the answers that the world doesn't provide, but because it robs Him of glory. Because God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in Him. If this statement is true at all, it has any merit. And friends, the Psalms are a treasure trove of glory for God. They are an invitation for Him to be the God that He claims to be and to share with us and provide for us the things He has offered. I want to start today, and we're going to get to uh, Psalms uh, 52, 54, and 55, which serve as the basis for our lesson. But I want to begin by, uh, and usually I might do something like this in a lesson, I want to begin with a couple of warnings. Well, I actually want to begin with, with pointing out a couple of unnecessary warnings that sometimes we take into our study of Scripture. And so in a sense, I'm asking you to let go of, of these preconceived notions and maybe the things preachers would tell you on occasion not to do. And I'm going to give you permission, if I can today, to do these things. All right. Number one, we are often warned, and rightly so, not to put ourselves into every story of Scripture. That the people on the pages of Scripture were unique to their situation and to their time, particularly in the Old Testament. And a lot of times we, we, like to, we like to put ourselves into the story. We like to be the hero. We certainly don't want to be the villain, but we always think we have a place somewhere. I don't know if you've ever done this, but there are people in life who are waiting for a call like Abraham got. I'll go if God calls me. I have the faith of Abraham. I'm just waiting on the time for him to call me. Or, or if, if he would call me like Noah, or he would call me like Moses, I, I would be that. And I'm not the way these other men are. And we try to put ourselves into the story and we're warned, don't do that. Friends, I believe the Psalms are different. It's been pointed out by at least one speaker this week that the Psalms may be anonymous, most of them, for reason. It's so they can continue to be timeless. So that I can identify, I can put myself in the psalm, I can see it the way the psalmist saw it. I, I can walk through it the way he walked through it. And so uh, today, as we look at these psalms, I want us to immerse ourselves in the details of what these psalms have to say. And I want us to take on the complaints and the struggles and the problems that the psalmist had in these three. Because I believe we all share in that at some point or another. Eddie Clore wrote, whoever wrote this piece talking about the the book of Psalms has lived in the same kind of world that we live in, has lived in the same kind of body that we live in, has experienced the same emotions, frustrations, and joys and tears that I have known. The Psalms then are a storehouse of human experience. Love and hate, joy and sorrow, peace and strife, hope and fear, faith and despair. And while the Bible says much about us channeling our emotions and championing our emotions and controlling our emotions, very few times does the Bible tell us not to express them and not to have them, that we're forbidden to feel. And so the Psalms gives us that permission to put ourselves in the middle. So go ahead. Complain with the psalmist in Psalm 52 and in Psalm 54 and in Psalm 55 because if that is your complaint, I believe God has an answer today for your struggles. That's warning number one I want to undo. All right, We can embrace the element of the Psalms as they apply to our lives. 
The second warning is in relation to how we express ourselves to God in prayer. I'll explain it maybe this way, and some will say this. If our prayers are truly spiritual, they won't be concerned about our own struggles and our own needs, but about everyone else's. Now, I know that we may not say it overtly like that, but we, we tend to hint at that, right? That we warn against selfish prayers. And I guess there's a reason to warn against that because if we never pray for anyone else and we never thank God for the things we have and we only ask for our needs, we can become very self-centered in our prayer approach. But David Platt called these kind of individuals who, who monitor these prayers and warn us prayer police. And he makes notation that the psalmist in Psalm 55 in particular wasn't concerned about the prayer police. Because in that psalm alone, there were more than 27 personal references. And really, if you've read the psalms this weekend in in connection with the sermons, almost all of them contain I and me and mine and my. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll teach our children to pray. Maybe, maybe you were taught this way to, to fold their hands and then to, to let each, each finger on the hand represent something else to pray for. So the thumb would be the person closest to you, the people closest to you, the, the, the pointer finger, the one that is, has tu- the people that have touched you the most and influenced you, and the, the, the tallest one being those in authority, and then the, the ring finger being the weakest, and pray for those who are weaker. And when you've prayed for all of them, pray for the most insignificant, weakest one on the hand, and that is the last one, and that's you. I'm not sure I like that much anymore. <laughs> hey, I'm all for the four in front of me, but prayer is about me and God. Prayer is a place where my needs intersect His greatness. And when He responds to that, He receives glory, and I receive what I need in response. And so again, the psalmist invites us to immerse ourselves in the writer's emotions, to be personal, to be intimate with God, and complain to Him. Now, I mentioned earlier, I don't know why you're here. Is it for extra credit, Ezekiel? I don't know. Now, Ezekiel's recording about all the other students. Is it for that? Is it because you feel obligated as blood relatives to be here? Is it because you don't want to be in the auditorium? I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps it is because you read the title and we have all at some point in time felt betrayed. And we're conditioned not to complain, right? To, to, to grin and bear it. To, to look for what we might have done to have caused the break in relationship. And because of that, we bury these feelings of inadequacies and, and, of, and of unimportance. Because someone has left us high and dry, turned their back on us, talked about us, forgotten us. And yet the psalmist brings all of those emotions right to the forefront. And he complains to God about the betrayal that he's felt. I was trying to find an illustration about betrayal. Preachers do that sometimes. We look high and low. We want a perfect illustration. And I couldn't find one until I got a text yesterday afternoon. Um, It's really never good to start an illustration by saying, I looked for one and then I saw Logan Cates. But I'll tell you this. (laughs) Logan Cates came into my office day one of lectureship and said, Hey, I've got to speak and I forgot my Bible. Okay, I have a Bible you can borrow. So I gave him my Bible, my teaching Bible, the Bible that I teach class with, that I carry with me. And uh, he taught his first lesson, walked by me in the foyer and said, I've got one more lesson, which was a couple of days after that. I said, okay. So we took the Bible and got a text yesterday that said, guess where I am and guess what I've done. He left with my Bible. He betrayed me. 
Okay? Um, and I'm dealing with the anger and the emotion of Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 and Psalm 55 right now. As a result. Honestly, there might be some of you in here this morning that are dealing with a betrayal of a close friend. A fellow Christian, a spouse, a child, a co-worker. Maybe a fellow preacher or church leader. I'm asking you to allow God this morning to be Himself and to sustain you in the midst of betrayal. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21 and verse 21, He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life and righteousness and honor. That word loyalty is a pretty important Old Testament word, hesed, which can be translated covenant loyalty or kindness in so many other passages. Loyal love is what the New Living Translation describes it as, undying love. Yet Solomon also writes in Proverbs 20 and verse 6 that while a man may proclaim his own loyalty, who can find a trustworthy man? If you have been around the block a time or two, and you have been in local work and congregational work and in, in the workforce as a whole, if you've, if you've attended school anywhere, if you had a circle of friends at all, I think you can attest to that last idea. That while many might claim loyalty, it's hard to find a truly trustworthy person. What do we do in the wake of our dealings with those that are not trustworthy? That's the message of our Psalms this morning. That's what David sets out to try to get us to see. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than looking at each psalm individually, because they are connected, and that's sort of the subtitle of, of this, this section of psalms, that, or this section of lessons in the, in, the, in the lectureship book, the connections that are made, there are connections between these three psalms. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to look at the setting for each of these psalms, and then I want us to, to look at, the, at the, the answer to betrayal found in each one of these. And then if time permits, we'll look at some lessons we can learn from them. Let's first of all consider the, the situations or the circumstances of these psalms. You could also entitle this the progression of betrayal. Because if you follow the chain of, of thought through each one, um, it leads to a, a more aggressive and more deadly and, and more demoralizing betrayal each time. Um, now, Psalms 52 and 54, in those Psalms, there are no historical allusions at all. Uh, it is, uh, for lack of a better term, generic in the way that the psalmist approaches the situation that he's in and the betrayal that he's suffered. But we do have those headings, those, those ancient headings in the Psalms that would give us some indication as to what maybe was on the mind of the writer when he wrote it. I know there's been some debate even this week about whether or not they were inspired or whether or not they were added later by the scribes or someone uh, closely connected to the writing of those Psalms added them themselves. But they do provide, and we do for the most part, unless there's some major reason in the psalm not to accept it, we generally accept uh, those, those, those ancient titles uh, as, as trustworthy. And so Psalm 52 reveals to us that David wrote this psalm, this Meskil song, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David is in the house, has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now if you haven't studied through First and Second Samuel, that may not mean anything at all to you. But it should pique your interest a little bit to go back and find out what's going on in, in 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. You see, David, like his ancestors, spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And he learned lessons that Israel learned in the wilderness. He learned how to trust God and how to be faithful and how to make up for the mistakes that he made and how to depend on people along the way that God put in his path. 
And one of the first people that God put in David's path as he ran from Saul and spent time in the wilderness was a man named Ahimelech who lived in Nob. You, you might remember the story more for the New Testament reference to that when David gets there and his men have nothing to eat and Ahimelech allows them to eat the showbread of, of, the, of, the, of the tabernacle. Okay? And so you have this, you have this uh, de- bread that was dedicated to God. David's able to, to, to eat of it and supply, supply and sustain his men. Also, Ahimelech had the, the sword of Gath and gave it to David so he could use for protection. This is maybe David's first stop as he ran from Saul. But in the middle of this whole story, the narrator gives a slight comment in verse 7. It isn't part of the narrative. It's just sort of a side note. It says, Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And then the story just keeps going on. For the reader, it doesn't seem that important. It doesn't seem that significant. In fact, it might cause you to stop and ask why. Why would we need that information? But if we've read enough Old Testament history, we're going to know that that's going to come back, right? There's going to be a reason that we were told about that. Well, a little bit later... When Saul has tried to pursue David and, and lost on, on, on several occasions, he calls his men to him and he begins to chastise them and, and berate them for, for helping David. And Doeg steps out from, steps out from the shadows and says, Hey, I saw him. He was over in Nod with Ahimelech. Now what happens as a result of that ends up, ends up the, with the killing of 85 priests. But the point is that in a time when it, ma- when it made him look good to the king, David was betrayed by the Edomite. And it's based on that betrayal, that, that disclosure of his location, that David seems to have written this psalm. That's the background. That's the situation. The second of the situations is found in Psalm 54 in its superscript. And this time it was a miskill of David that was written when the Ziphites came to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Now this happens to David twice. Happens in 1 Samuel 23 and in 1 Samuel 26. And David was only in the land of the Ziphites because God told him to go there because where he was staying at the time, God said they're not going to keep your location secret. They're going to betray you. So David leads one location of betrayal and ends up in another situation of betrayal and twice they betray him. And so David, seeking refuge and hoping to find loyalty, David had to flee again. Now there are some notable differences between these two, despite the fact that they are uh, very similar. Number one, the men of Ziph conspired to betray David. They met together and decided to go to Saul, and yet Doag seemed to just take advantage of the situation that was ahead of him and getting good with the king. The Ziphites contacted Saul themselves. They didn't wait for Saul to raise a ruckus like he did back in the days uh, in the time of Doeg. But worst of all, worst of all, if you if you look at the chronology or the 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 uh, geography of the land. The Ziphites did this. They were part of David's territory and part of David's tribe. They were part of David's people. So you see the progression, right? You have an Edomite who takes advantage of a situation in the right place for his, in his mind at the right time, betrays David. And then you have these others who conspire against him and they're his own flesh and blood. And then we get to Psalm 55. And in Psalm 55, there is no heading. There is no reference to when David wrote this, but there is at least one historical allusion in the text about who this might have been. And this would absolutely be the worst betrayal of all. 
If you take time to read verses 12 through 14 of Psalm 55, you're going to find that this man who betrayed David here was equal to him. He was a companion, a familiar friend, one with with whom David had walked in the house of God and from whom he had received counsel. And if you're going to follow that that chain of thought, here here is a, a random Edomite. Right place at the right time betrays David. His own countrymen who, who, who go after David and conspire to, to turn him over. But now you have someone who he walked with and ate with and counseled with and worshipped with and now he betrays him. It has to be the greatest betrayal of all. Now, if you want to offer... You want to. You don't have to. If you want to offer some excuses for the first two betrayals, it's pretty easy to do. At that time, Saul was still the sitting king. He was still the monarch. He was still in charge and in power. And perhaps there was a, a feeling of loyalty to God's anointed, the same way David felt loyalty to God's anointed, the reason he didn't kill Saul when he had an opportunity to do it. But you fast forward to, to the days of what's probably going on in Psalm 55. David's probably already firmly established on the throne. Not as he just established on the throne. He's not reigning in Hebron. He's now in Jerusalem. The kingdom has been united. God, God's people has finally come into the land the way he intended for them to. And they were one nation under the reign and rule of David. And then came the rebellion of his son Absalom. In the midst of the rebellion of his son Absalom, his chief advisor, Ahithophel, went with him. We know that from reading Old Testament history. And it's very likely and highly probable that that is the betrayal David's talking about in Psalm 55. His own son and his most trusted advisor. Now, what's interesting is that when you read 2 Samuel 16, Ahithophel is described, and I love this description, and we should all seek someone like this in our lives. The Bible says that when Ahithophel gave advice, it was like he was giving the inspired word of God, as if he was inspired. Do you have people like that in your life? I mean, you don't trust them to be, to be perfect in all things, and you know that their advice could be wrong in certain situations, but you trust them so much that if you didn't have a Bible, you would go to them. Because you truly and firmly believe that what they're saying is in your best interest and in harmony and concert with the Word of God, and they are true and honorable in all the advice they give. That was Ahithophel, and yet this man turned against David. Went with his son Absalom in the rebellion. In fact, David is going to describe that betrayal a little bit later in, in chapter 55 of Psalms and verses 20 and 21. It says, And he put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him, and he violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, his heart was at war, his words were softer than oil, yet he drew had drawn swords. If this is Ahithophel and this is Absalom, David pictures this as something that had been unfolding for some time. If you read the text, Absalom's been planning this since he came back. He was banished, he came back, and he had been planning this revolt, and maybe he had been talking to Ahithophel the whole time, and while they were buttering David up, being nice to him, propping him up as king behind his back, they were plotting and planning and drawing swords. There was war in their heart. Now I'd ask you, as you think about how this applies to you and the relationships you've had in life and those betrayals that you've suffered, ever felt that? Ever felt foolish for trusting someone? For believing they were on your side? For assuming they had your best interest at heart? 
only to realize that they had been plotting against you in their heart all along. If you've ever felt that, you can appreciate what David feels here. You know, these aren't the only betrayal psalms, by the way. Probably should have said this from the beginning. Psalm 34, David says, I went about as though he were my friend or my brother. I bowed down in mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Psalm 35, verse 14. David said, I thought they were friends of mine. I thought they had my best interest at heart. And yet, when I stumbled, they all rejoiced. Later in Psalm 41, David wrote, All who hate me whisper against me, and against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him. Then he lies down and will not rise up again. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate bread with me, has lifted up his heel against me. Where do we find these betrayal statements later in Scripture? When it comes to Jesus. That I have a close friend and one that I ate with. Jesus is going to use that very line in John twenty and John thirteen, rather, as he as he reveals the betrayer. So this is real stuff. This is deep. Someone who had walked with him and sat with him and ate with him, as David would say in Psalm fifty five, worshipped with him. He betrayed him, brethren. Have you ever? If you ever broke bread of the Lord's Supper with someone only to have them turn against you? Have you ever known a spouse to share his or her most intimate and vulnerable moments with their spouse only to learn they have shared the same things with someone else while in the midst of that covenant? Have you ever had a friend that you confided in, revealed your private and personal conversations with, only to realize they were talking about your conversations to someone else all the while? Have you ever known of preachers that would share sensitive and damning information to fellow preachers over coffee as easily as they would talk about yesterday's football scores? Then perhaps we can appreciate what David's feeling here. I could have named a thousand people, David might say, who would have turned their back on me, but it wouldn't have been him. He was my most trusted friend, my most trusted counselor, my worship companion, my dinner companion. He would have never turned his back on me. That's the situation. So what about the solutions? And I believe that each psalm gives us a different aspect or approach to that solution of dealing with betrayal, uh, of, of handling these situations. I will tell you, I don't believe the answer is to just grin and bear it. I don't believe the answer to betrayal is to simply let people walk all over us and and to say, well, you know, one day, uh, you know, it, it, they'll get what's coming to them. Because I believe it breeds bitterness and contempt and anger. We've got to process it. We've got to deal with it. We've got to put it somewhere, share it somehow. And I believe these psalms reveal that to us. The answer from Psalm 52, I believe, is found in the bookends. This is going to be true, by the way, of Psalm 54 as well as in Psalm 52. So the bookends of Psalm 52 say this, The loving kindness of God endures all day long. That's the end of verse 1. And the end of verse 28, or end of verse 8 rather says, The loving kindness of God endures forever and ever. 
You know how I'm going to deal with the betrayal of a friend that I thought was closer than a brother? Realize I have someone more loyal than that in my life. And it's interesting, that word loving kindness, translated there in the New American Standard, is the same word for loyalty in Proverbs 21.21 that we talked about a moment ago. You see, there are men who claim loyalty, but they fail in it. But you serve a God who will never fail in His loyalty. Paul would argue in Romans 8 in, in it this way. If God has freely given us His Son, will He not also freely give us all things? Listen, if God's been faithful in this, will He not be faithful in everything? I can't say that about me. I can't say that about you. Because there are points in all of our lives where we've been unfaithful, where promises have not been kept, where confidence have not been honored. That's the nature of who we are, what we do, and the choices we make. But we serve a God who is forever, eternally kind. This word for loving kindness that we mentioned from Proverbs 21 and also now from Psalm 52 is found 230 times in the Old Testament. It's found in places like the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy, but it's found specifically and more times than not in the book of Psalms. It's a, it's a book about God's loving kindness, about God's faithfulness. Sometimes it's faithfulness in the midst of sickness and trials and difficulty, but a lot of times faithfulness in the mental struggles of life when I can't trust anyone else. Again, you have to ask that question, have you been there? <coughs> At a point where you didn't trust. Ever said to yourself, and we've, we've faced this in the, in, the, in the times that we've moved in preaching, we'll come into a new congregation and we'll try to get acclimated and get involved and we've always been treated better than we deserved in every place that we've worked. But people will come to us and say, I'm just not getting close to anybody anymore. <coughs> you know, preachers leave and they come and go and things happen and I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get close to anybody anymore. And I think as a Christian that's the worst place in the world to be. It's in the church but not part of the church. With God's people but not connected to God's people. Well the answer is not in finding that person you can trust. The answer is in remembering that even when men turn their back, God always is faithful. His loving kindness is forever. Let's look at, we'll put these together in a moment. Look at, look at Psalm 54 and look at the bookends there. The bookends in Psalm 52 are the loving kindness of God. The bookends in Psalm 54 are a little bit different. You see, David begins this psalm with four imperatives to get heaven's attention to what he's dealing with. He pleads with God to save, vindicate, hear, and give ear. And then he appeals, according to verse 1, by his name. Save me, O God, by your name. Now drop down to Psalm 54 and verse 6. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord for it is good. So the bookends of 52 are God's loving kindness. The bookends of 54 are God's name. By the way, God's name has a whole lot more to do with it than a designation that He's known by. A title on His name tag. You know, some, a placard on His door. It's about His authority, His presence, His power, His ability, His love and majesty. In fact, I believe that we can easily tie these together in another Old Testament Text. Turn with me to, to, to Exodus 33 for just a moment. Look at, look at Exodus 33. We're going to look at verse 19, then we're going to look at a passage in verse 34. And I believe we're going to tie the, the bookends of Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 together and be able to see that this is why we can trust in God when we can't trust in anyone else. Now, 
to set the stage for Exodus 33, there was a time in Moses' life in, in Exodus 3 when Moses asked God what his name was. Remember that? It's in the burning bush. And he says, listen, they're going to ask me who you are and ask me your name and I'm not going to know what to tell them. So what is your name? And God's answer in that moment was, I am. You tell them the I am sent you. I am the self-sustaining one, the self-existent one. That's good enough. But I believe that later on, as Moses gets to know God better and learns Him, that we get to another place where God finally and fully reveals His name to Moses. In Exodus 33 and verse 19, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. He's talking about the next day. He's going to tell him to go hide himself in the cleft of the rock and he'll pass over him. And I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That's the promise. See that in 3319? You go hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I will proclaim my name to you. Well, that happens in the, in the next chapter. In verse 34, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, there's our word, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The name of God is loving kindness, covenant loyalty. Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 bookends are not different. They're compatible. They speak the same thing. God's name is love, mercy, grace, kindness. And so when I'm suffering because someone has betrayed me, and by the way, we may never get those friendships back. There are those right now that I would love to sit and talk with just like it was 15 years ago. And Maybe one day it will. But right now, I can't. Now I can become bitter and I can become angry and I can blame God and I can blame the church and I I can discount all preachers and all friends and all family members. Or I can remember that the name of God is loving kindness and loyalty. In the midst of my struggles with other people, I can trust in the faithfulness of God. That's the point of Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. I will trust in His everlasting kindness, which is the name that He wears. But then there's Psalm 55. See, 54, 52 deal with God's side of what He does, but I believe Psalm 55 deals with what I'm supposed to do, what my response is supposed to be. How I'm supposed to deal with the, the God who is, who is forever kind and His name is gracious and loving. The key phrase, and we're hurrying through this, we want to get to some lessons to look at, but the key phrase is in verse 16. As David gives this vivid description of betrayal that we've looked at and the things we've talked about all the way through the first couple of sections of Psalm 55, he says in verse 16, As for me... Now, in the other text, he would say, the enemies are this, but God is this. David says in this text, the enemies are this, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to act like God. I'm going to be like Him. And he's going to finish out that psalm by telling us all the things he's going to do faithfully and continually despite the fact that people have betrayed him. He says in verse 17, I'm going to pray fervently and daily. In verse 18, I'm going to appreciate those who have not turned their back on me. Verse 19, I'm going to reflect on the unchanging nature of God. 
verses 21 through 23, I'm going to cast all of my burdens and trust in and on Him. You see, that, that phrase, as for me, is a powerful English phrase in our Bibles in the Old Testament. It doesn't just mean I've made a decision, but I've made a decision to be faithful to God in light of all the circumstances that are, that are going on. You might remember the most famous of those probably being Joshua in Joshua 24 and verse 15. As he gave Israel all the options they had to choose which gods they were going to serve, and then he made that statement, but as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Job made a similar statement when he faced suffering and death in Job 5 and verse 25. Micah, the same thing in waiting for God in Micah 7 and verse 7. And David here in this psalm, as for me, because I know God's name and I know His everlasting kindness and greatness, I'm going to do these things. As He is faithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to Him. And because of that, the betrayal of the outside world is not going to matter quite as much anymore. I can deal with it because I have a friend who's greater and more loyal than they've ever been. And so then, as we draw things to a close this morning, we think about the significance of these texts. The lessons of, that we learn from betrayal. There was a word that was used in the superscript of 52 and 54, that word mesquil, a mesquil song or psalm. There's a lot of debate. And there are a lot of words like that, by the way, in the superscripts that are debated. And, and even as the, 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 the stanza breaks in the psalm, and the, you have the word selah, there's a lot of conjecture and discussion. And, and there's some discussion about it in the book, and there's other places you can go to discuss it more. But some versions will translate that word understanding, a psalm of understanding. And what it seems to be the case is the psalmist wants us to read those for the purpose of learning something. Okay, this is a teaching moment. Now, I get it. We should see every word of God that way, right? Every psalm should teach us something. But there seem to be some psalms that they would take out of the rotation and use them in instructive purposes. Not worship necessarily, uh, you know, not, not songs of ascent that we've been talking about this weekend, but particularly these were, these were didactic psalms. They were teaching psalms. If that's the case, then what I learn about these should maybe even be more powerful than what I might learn in another one as, as a secondary reference to a song of praise or worship. And so here are some lessons I would, I would give you. I have, seven, I have seven in my notes. I'll just briefly mention them to you. Number one, I believe we learn from this psalm that God is the greatest friend we'll ever have. And I don't say that cliché. I don't say that to minimize our hurt and discouragement when we're betrayed. But friends, we've got to get back to thinking that way. I think sometimes in betrayal when we're hurt and we're struggling and someone points this out, we'll say, I know God's faithful, but I wanted that person to be faithful. I know God won't leave me, but I didn't want that person to leave me. And if we're truly going to understand the teaching of these Psalms, we're going to have to leave those caveats off and rejoice in the fact that God is always faithful, that He is the best friend. I'll ever have. Ever have one of those best friends, though, that you could only be their best friend and no one else could be their best friend? <laughs> That's not God. He can be all our best friends. Equally and fully and consistently. What an amazing thought that is. We learn that from, from these psalms. We also learn, and we talked a lot about this, about God's unfailing covenant loyalty. That, that He's entered into a, an agreement with us and He's going to keep His end of the bargain. He's going to be faithful. We don't have to sign a contract. We don't have to shake hands. When He says it, His Word is true, right? And His unfailing love is connected then to His unchanging character. 
But I think we also learn, and we have to be, we have to acknowledge this and be real about it. Betrayal is a bitter pill to swallow. And I have the right to feel betrayed and to express that to God. To be cautious and careful about putting myself out there again. God has given us that ability and right and wisdom. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I would hope we never get jaded to the point where we'll never have close friends again. But I think after a betrayal or two, we start looking a, more, a little more closely, don't we? About who we tell what to and how often we tell them and how much time we spend with them. And I think the psalmist would teach us that in these verses. I think we also learn that your friend today might not be your friend tomorrow. And rather than being suspicious of people, I would just say take advantage of every day of friendship you have. Make the most of it. Invest in one another. Depend on one another. And maybe if we do that, those betrayals won't come. And we'll be faithful along the way. Another lesson we learn is that loyalty is a divine quality. It's not a man-made or man-originated concept. And every one of us should want to be like God. Finally, I'll leave you with this one. All of us need as-for-me moments in life. Moments where we make a declaration that despite what anyone else does to us, says about us, or has against us, that we will be faithful to the Lord. Don't ever let the lack of faithfulness of God's people keep you from trusting in the faithfulness of God. And don't ever let the lack of trust and faithfulness in God's people allow you not to be faithful to them. May it never be said of us that we have betrayed. And may we always remember that in the, in the midst of betrayal, we serve a God who is loyal and covenantly faithful to us.